welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people. The whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit! We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Friends, this is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's take a moment to pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here once again in these spaces. We pray, O Lord, that on this Easter morning, you would give us your spirit of illumination. Thank you that because Jesus is crucified and resurrected, the spirit has been sent out into the cosmos upon the earth, indwelling your people. Father, we need the Spirit of God in order to understand the things, the Word of God. Father, would you meet us in all of our faith and all of our doubt, all of our joy and all of our sorrow. Father, would we get on the Thomas track, moving towards confession of you as our Lord, as our God. Thank you, Jesus, that you speak peace to us. Would we exult in the peace of Jesus that he has bought for us even now. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Easter Sunday, here we go. They said it couldn't be done, but here we are. And on this Easter Sunday morning, we are going to talk about doubt. On this Easter Sunday morning, we would yet ask the question, is any of this real? And that might seem a little strange, maybe a little tone deaf. Why on Easter Sunday are we talking about something like doubt? Did this happen? Is it real? Well, consider it this way. Typically, for churches, Easter Sunday means that churches get more visitors than usual. That was certainly true of us during physical gathering, and I bet it's true again here this morning. And maybe you're in that boat watching where you don't normally do church stuff, but you realize that it was Easter, and you thought, hey, maybe I might check in, or check back in, or tune in. And maybe you're wondering a little bit. Maybe it's the Holy Spirit actually working inside of you right now, and you're thinking, 
could this possibly be me? Could this be real for me? Or in the other direction, maybe you've been a church regular for a long time, whether Liberty Collingswood or church more generally, and year after year after year after year, there have been Easter Sundays. But perhaps more recently, maybe you've been wandering. Maybe your faith is becoming less sure and less certain to you. Maybe there are more doubts. And you're sitting here thinking, does this Jesus stuff, does Christianity, does the story of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, does it still fit me? So let's talk about these things. Let's talk about doubt. Another reason why I think it's actually appropriate on Easter Sunday to talk about doubt is because it's in the Easter story with our old friend, good old doubting Thomas. Jesus has appeared to the other disciples. Thomas isn't around. And he says, ah, I'm not so sure. Again, Thomas puts it this way. Unless I see it, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. But Thomas, in his doubt, becomes one of the most important figures in all of the resurrection stories that we have in the Gospels, the narrative accounts of Jesus' life. An old church teacher and pastor, Gregory of Nyssa, put it this way, The unbelief of Thomas is more profitable to our faith than the belief of the other disciples. For the touch by which he is brought to believe confirms our minds in belief beyond all question. So this morning we have a welcome story. Come to Jesus in your faith. Come to Jesus in your doubt. See Thomas and see Jesus in the breathtaking portrait that we have in these few verses concerning Jesus of Nazareth. And if you are able to say with Thomas, I'm not so sure, I need more data, would you also come to a point of confessing with Thomas and the church around the world and throughout the ages Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, my Lord and my God, and be an agent of Jesus' good news in the world. So let's talk in two parts from here. It's not rocket science, although my dad was a rocket scientist. I am not. Two parts. Jesus. We're going to talk about him, his power and his patience, and then Thomas, doubt and direction. So Jesus, power and patience, Thomas, doubt and direction. And we eavesdrop, we pick up the story here. John is one of those gospels and narrative accounts of Jesus' life after Jesus is risen from the tomb. And you can read John chapter 20 today for more context, where John walks through different resurrection instances of Jesus. So first, the empty tomb. Mary and Peter and John find the tomb empty. And then Jesus appears to Mary in the garden. Mysteriously, Mary doesn't recognize Jesus at first. But then Jesus says, Mary. And she says, Rabboni. And then Jesus appears to many of the disciples all on that first resurrection Sunday. But Thomas isn't there. So we pick up verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. 
And I was reading a commentary a couple weeks ago about this passage, and that person talking about this verse said, this is why you should do church every week, because you never know what's going to happen. Thomas missed Jesus. And when I read that, I thought, that is an amazing point. I love that point so much. So Thomas wasn't there. The disciples tell Thomas after the fact, you're not going to believe who we saw today. Jesus risen. And Thomas says, I am not so sure, thus gives us the story all of these years later we know. Maybe you're familiar with the story, maybe not. Doubting Thomas. St. Thomas the Doubter. And so we engage not only Thomas, but then also Jesus, thinking about his power and his patience. Those things go together pretty rarely. And we live in a moment where any power, any authority, we are deeply suspicious of it, and the church confesses that Jesus truly is Lord of all, the potentate of time, the one that is all-powerful. But then we wonder in that same breath, can we trust him? Because we're conditioned to believe that absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? And make no mistake, Jesus is this powerful figure. Here he is, resurrected where Jesus looks the big bad guys in the eye on the cross. Sin and death and the devil. And says to them, it is finished. You lose. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus rises again. This is a big deal. And interestingly, specifically in John's Gospel, there seems to be an emphasis on the resurrected body itself, of Jesus. There's something different about this body from all of the other bodies, including different from Jesus, before the resurrection. There's something new going on. You see that detail in verse 26, where Jesus comes into the room with the disciples again. The door is locked. Perhaps an innocuous detail, but John gives that same detail a week before when Jesus first appears to the disciples, minus Thomas. The doors are locked again. Somehow, does Jesus pass through walls? A point is being made. Why is it that Mary doesn't quite recognize Jesus in the garden until Jesus says, Mary? So the resurrection body of Jesus is powerful, similar to the body that he had before, and different at the same time as a preview. And we confess this on Sunday morning. We'll do that later in the service here, the Apostles' Creed. We believe in the resurrection of the body. This powerful resurrection body, if you believe in Jesus, it's coming for us. And so with Jesus, before and after his resurrection, now as he has ascended, this is our point of wrestling, our point of grappling with the Christian story, this Jesus. And we see Jesus' power, too, extending to his omniscience, you might not have caught when I read this story a few moments ago that when Jesus addresses Thomas, he wasn't there earlier when Thomas first said, I'm not on board, I need to see more. But then when Jesus appears, he targets Thomas. Verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and by Jewish calendar reckoning, these are inclusive days, the equivalent of our seven days. Another resurrection Sunday, the next one, a week later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. 
And typically, we might think, okay, Jesus is resurrected. It's a really big deal. If Jesus is like the rest of us, and typical of us, maybe Jesus would want to whack Thomas a little bit, or at least scold him. How could you not believe the eyewitness testimony that you've been given so far, Thomas? But instead, Jesus is shockingly accommodating to doubting Thomas. He says this. Then he said to Thomas, Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas, you have a lot of questions. In all of my patience, in all of my grace, in all of my great love for you, I can work with this. Let's have a conversation. Let me show you. Another ancient church leader, John Chrysostom, said this, And when you see Thomas, the disciple, refusing to believe, reflect on the mercy shown by the Lord, how even for the sake of one soul he showed himself with his wounds and came so that he might save even the one soul, despite the fact that this one, ancient language here, was more crass than the others. But this is a welcome story. And Jesus of Nazareth, in his resurrection body, still bears the scars of the cross, where Jesus paid the penalty for sin so that we can be assured you can come messy in your doubts, in your questions, in your awkwardness. It's okay. You can still come to Jesus, and Jesus will be happy to be in process with you. And as I think again about the moment in which we live, when I encounter ideologies both on the secular right and on the secular left, I'm not, so, I'm not so sure that there is space in those places for processing. When I feel instead, as I look at social media and otherwise, it's either measure up or ship out. But instead, because of Jesus, the church has an opportunity to be a third space, to be a third way, where we say, yes, let's talk about these things. As you take steps towards Jesus or towards Jesus again, know the healing of this Jesus who is incredibly powerful and yet also infinitely patient as you learn the process of his healing. Years ago, when I was just a little boy, I played Little League baseball, and my baseball coach for a number of years was a man named Mr. Malcolm. And this was back in the 1980s where you couldn't be a baseball coach in Little League unless you were a shouter and shouted at the kids a lot. That's what Mr. Malcolm did, loved him as a coach. I played shortstop, a kid named Gabe played second base, and one day at practice, we were trying to work on turning the double play. Philly's undefeated, you heard it here first, not a prophet nor the son of the prophet, undefeated baseball season for the Philadelphia Phillies baseball club this year. Trying to turn a double play, me to Gabe, I did it perfectly, as one would understand. Gabe did not, so Mr. Malcolm started shouting and walking toward Gabe. And as Mr. Malcolm got a couple steps away, Gabe went, and he flinched. He cringed. Mr. Malcolm stopped, and even though he was a shouter, he was in no other way a violent man. 
He said, Gabe, I'm not going to hit you. And at that moment, Gabe burst into tears. Mr. Malcolm, not a crier, 1980s Little League Baseball, also burst into tears. I don't know whatever follow-up steps occurred with Gabe and his living situation. But he had been formed and malformed, flinching at a coach that was raising his voice. But in all of the ways that we are formed and malformed by having to toe the company line, but come to Jesus instead and know the process of his healing. Jesus of Nazareth gives you welcome. And where do you need to lean in? Maybe it's leaning in the direction of understanding that Jesus is so powerful, that he is very God of very God, deserving of our loyalty and allegiance, fierce and demanding of us holy and reverent fear. Maybe you need to remember in the other direction. Jesus is not like all of those other authority figures, all of those other bosses, and instead his yoke is easy and his burden is light come to this Jesus. And also we may find ourselves kind of like Thomas, where we're not so sure. So if that's Jesus, his power and his patience, let's talk about Thomas. Doubt and direction. This is doubting Thomas. He's not so sure at the beginning of the story. And at least for me, as I read this story, the fact that we have recorded on record Thomas doubting, that's a clue to me that this story is true because the optics are not that great. Let's face it. It doesn't reflect well on Thomas because he's doubting. It makes, uh, speaking of 1980s Little League Baseball, makes the disciples continue to look like a little bit like the Bad News Bears, where they're not together and they're not doing what Jesus wants them to do. Also, maybe reflects a little poorly on Jesus, too. Even his own disciples were doubting. It's a clue to me that the story is true, and by that same token, it opens a door for us into spaces of healthy doubt. If you've been a follower of Jesus and you have some doubts, don't freak out. But listen to those doubts. Interrogate them. A couple of years ago when I was on sabbatical, I read a book called The Crucifixion by a scholar named Fleming Rutledge. This book is considered the best recent work on the crucifixion for the church in the West. Really smart woman, really long book. But at one point in the book, she says, yeah, I have my doubts too sometimes. And she wrote this. Many believers have a crisis of faith every few days, yet in the midst of grave misgivings, they continue to build their lives upon the confession of faith in Jesus Christ as found in Holy Scripture. So we can be honest about our doubts. And if you're somebody that's a secular person, maybe atheistic, maybe agnostic, I would encourage you as well to have doubts about your own worldview. I've mentioned a couple times recently, one of my favorite recently deceased authors is a man named Robert Stone. He was an ex-Catholic in his life. He grew up in New York. But he is on record for saying, I never quite gave it up, and it stays with me. He told an author at this point, I don't see how anybody who took seriously their Catholic upbringing can be comfortable as an atheist you would have to doubt that too. And practically speaking, when I have conversations with, athe with atheistic or agnostic friends and I'm given permission to push back a little bit, 
I think we can see that there are moments of doubt for all of us where I'll ask questions like, okay, you're not on board with Christianity, just some basic stuff, but you still think some things are right and wrong. Why? On what basis? How do you trust your own perception? And if you trust your current community, understand that around the world and throughout the ages, communities have been really wrong about a lot of things. How can you trust this one right now? If you say that Earth is random and not going anywhere, why are you so passionate about saying this is the direction in which we need to live? And how do you know when on one hand you say human beings were just higher evolved forms of animals, but then you turn around and say we've got to stop treating each other like animals? If we see in the animal kingdom where resources are scarce and competition is good, why do you oppose tribalism among human beings so much at the same time? And often, and understand that there are, you know, lots of books written that, that give justifications for these things. I honor and respect that. But oftentimes in conversation, I hear back, I don't know. So let's doubt and let's wrestle together. And as we access Thomas here, his doubt occurs among two different but related avenues. Thomas' doubt extends to the evidential, evidence, and also the existential, we can go in both of those directions. Thomas begins by wanting more evidence. Unless I see it, the hands and the side, I'm not so sure that I am going to believe. But Jesus is willing to work with Thomas. Jesus is willing to work with us as we ask for more evidence. Again, verse 27. I'll show you. Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And because Jesus is crucified and resurrected, we have the grace. We have the space to ask those questions and to explore. And as you explore Christianity with your doubts, let your point of wrestling rest squarely with, is it true or not that Jesus is crucified and resurrected? Yeah, we can go back to the beginning of Genesis and ask questions about the age of the earth, etc. We can talk about these things. But if Jesus is resurrected, that's the real important question. And as I've said here at Liberty Collingswood and in Easter's past, you can be assured of good evidence that he is. It's been said that the most well-attested event in the history of the ancient Near East is the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you look at the evidence, all of the canons of history and historiography say, yeah, our best verdict is that all of this happened. For example, if you want to believe something in the ancient world, you need lots of eyewitness accounts. And there were eyewitness accounts that occurred quickly and from different people groups and different places. We have all of that. And early written accounts, we have those too. Four different early written gospels giving slightly different perspectives, but unified in saying Jesus is resurrected. So often for a lot of our ancient history, there's only one written account written much, much later. That's not the true, true here, and it's not only the, the gospel accounts written by people on the inside, external accounts, those that were not followers of Jesus, also were saying, yes, it seems like this really happened. Another reason why we can have confidence. This is pretty unlikely. And it might seem counterintuitive to you, but put your thinking cap on just for another moment here. Canons of history are such that if there is a well-attested event, 
that also is pretty unlikely, that actually makes it more likely that it actually happened. We can think along these lines, too. Cross and women, cost and empire. Jesus was crucified. And for us, the cross of Jesus, in a lot of cases, is a dead metaphor. We don't really think a lot about it. But if for us, it's a dead metaphor. Originally, it was a metaphor of death. It was a horrific symbol, hated by everybody and seen as a tool of the utmost oppression and brutality and occupation and injustice and violence. If you're going to write the story from scratch, why would you include such a report as the climax of the story? In our own time, in our own terms, we might say, that is a really problematic thing to insert into this narrative. And the cross, that's as close as you get to a third real issue. Do we really want to go there? Maybe a recent painful equivalent for us is the symbol of all of this, the climax, is a knee on the neck, a cross. Why is it there? Why are we going there? So there's cross and there's also women. The, the first witnesses to the resurrection, the gospel accounts say, are, are women. And in ancient court settings in Judea, women were not admissible witnesses in court. If you're going to say, hey, we really need this story to catch on, let's rewrite it such that the men were there first and were the first witnesses. And also cost. And if you've been in the church for a long time, maybe you've heard this before, but I think it's true. People gave their lives for this, believing it to be true. Why would they have gone through all of the trouble, even to death, if this just was not the case at all? And then also empire. Jewish elites, and more than that, the Roman Empire, throughout the first centuries of the life of the church, were deeply invested in discrediting and stomping upon this movement. But they couldn't find the evidence because it wasn't there, contrary to Jesus crucified and resurrected. So try on Jesus and think about these things along these evidential lines, but it's not just evidential, it's existential too. When Thomas saw the risen Jesus, and intriguingly, the story doesn't say for sure, did Thomas actually touch Jesus on the hands and the side? We don't know. But when he got to that point, he didn't just check off the boxes and say, yeah, this checks out. I have my clipboard. I have my hard hat. I'm going to go on to the next thing. I'm glad I know now. Instead, in his soul, existentially, we hear the cry of confession, verse 28. My Lord and my God. Deep in his heart, deep in his soul, in his very being, Thomas confesses, my Lord and my God. A profound and a personal confession. Profound. My God. Thomas calls the risen Jesus of Nazareth, my God. Was Jesus divine? Thomas thought so and said so. And Jesus didn't disagree. We've been building towards this moment, if you know a little bit about John's gospel. Jesus has said earlier that I and the Father are one. Jesus has said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. Jesus has told the disciple Philip, Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And now Thomas says, you're my God. 
And Jesus says, yeah, that's true. And then also, my Lord, Jesus, you are the embodiment of Yahweh. You are truly Lord. And would you be Lord of all things, including all the way over me? And I feel the pressure once again in this cultural moment where whether on the secular right or on the secular left, there's such a pressure to conform that we can feel it ourselves and think, okay, I'm going to be a little bit of a cafeteria Christian where I'll take this aspect of Jesus, this aspect of Jesus, this aspect of the Bible, this aspect of the Bible, not these others because it doesn't fit the paradigm that I feel that I need to fit into. That's not Jesus being Lord. That's something else confessing instead the profundity, Jesus, my Lord and my God, and making it personal for you. Understanding that it's not just anybody's my Lord and my God, but it is yours. So are there some steps of faith that you can take experiencing this Jesus? Last thing about the ancient church here, and then we're going to wrap up. It wasn't just enough for the ancient eyewitnesses and and written accounts as the word of Jesus spread from town to town, from community to community. But scholars agree, whether Christian scholars or non-Christian scholars and historians, they agree.